Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Thank you so much, uh, Logan and Dion, for starting our embodiment body series um, with that reflection. You moved me uh, profoundly. Thank you. Um, As Logan said, we're starting a series, uh, eight weeks. Um, It's not eight sermons. Um, Two of them are just stories, uh, not just stories, but stories from people who've kind of journeyed through some of this. Um, And I acknowledge before I begin this sermon that I'm um, able-bodied. I haven't experienced a lot of bodily pain in my life. Um, I I identify with the the um, a lot of you know, beautiful things about embodiment and listening to your body and connecting to your body. But um, I know that there are those who do not. And so, please know that um, what you're about to hear in the next like 20 minutes is one part of this whole conversation. One of my biggest fears of this was that. Um, you know, eight weeks later, when there's eight, epi- eight sermons on the podcast, someone would listen to five minutes of one and kind of misrepresent or misunderstand the heart of this whole thing. So the dream is that you would journey and be part of this whole thing and, and, and find yourself and your story and the story of those you love um, in the next eight weeks, even if it's not entirely today or not entirely next week. Um, so we're going to go into some uh, brave spaces together. We're going to talk about gender. We'll talk about sexuality. We'll talk about marriage. Um, and, and sometimes I think in the last few years, this conversation has dominated a lot of my life. Um, people wanting to know about what the biblical vision of sexual flourishing is. What is the biblical vision of, of um, flourishing in your body? Um, and at the heart of it all, I find Every single one of us, whether you, um, you know, are, are living in the tension between um, sex and gender, or the tension, um, you know, within your sexuality, um, every single one of us has a body and struggles with embodiment. And in, if we cannot acknowledge, um, like, if you can't acknowledge that your body is good and a place to encounter God, then why should you care about other people and their body? Uh, and so, the world being in the state that it is in right now means there's a lot of people who live outside of their bodies who don't care about the bodies of other people and don't care about this great body that we live upon, our, our earth, our, our planets. So um, I'm really looking forward to this series. And it's important that this series takes place right now, right after Easter. Uh, wow, Easter. Oh, Christmas, the other one. Christmas. Oh, if only it was like April right now, hey? No. Christmas. We celebrate the birth of Jesus. Uh, and sometimes we kind of pack away the tree and the ornaments and then move on and then it's like, you can't bear the thought of Christmas again for another like ten and a half months, but that's not what we're doing here. This is still Christmas. We're still celebrating that God became flesh and dwelt in a body, that God has a body, and that body is named Jesus, and that body now is all um, part of that body here hanging out with me in this room and hanging out over Zoom with all of us. Um, so God has a body named Jesus. The body named Jesus is God. Emmanuel. We call this at Christmas time, Emmanuel. God is with us, not with our intellect, not with some empty space we imagine in this shell that we're walking around in, um, but that God is here with us in this material world. The church often is just a place of spiritual. We call ourselves a spiritual community, but 
The incarnation, what we just celebrated as believers, is the spiritual and the material becoming one in the person of Christ, the place where the spiritual and the material become fully one. So this kind of duality or this kind of binary that we live in between flesh and spirit, uh, Christmas is where we acknowledge that that category collapses completely. Jesus is fully God and fully human. That's at the heart of our belief as Christians. We don't believe that Jesus is half God, half human. We don't think that Jesus got, you know, his human side from Mary, his biological mom, and his spirit side from the Holy Spirit, his, like, biological dad. That's not it. It's not half and half. God, Jesus isn't a demigod. We believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human, fully God-human. So just to make that really clear one more time, I actually got to give a little talk on this earlier this week, and the, the professor who was hosting me, his eyes kind of lit up. He's like, whoa, I never thought of that. Because I said, also, it's not the case that Jesus' body is human and then Jesus' spirit is God. That's not it either. Jesus' body is fully God and fully human. It's mind-blowing. Jesus' body is fully God and fully human. Um, there's a PowerPoint. I can't see it because we're using my phone to hotspot this service right now. But I'm trusting, yes, beautiful. Thank you, Jolene. You're just going to intuitively connect with this. This is lovely. Um, Jesus has many titles for himself. Um, we sing, uh, you know, uh, Ho Holy One, King of Kings, Everlasting God, uh, King of Israel, um, Son of God. But Jesus' favorite title that he ever uses for himself in all four Gospels is actually, um, most likely in your Bible, is Son of Man. He calls himself the Son of Man. Uh, I really appreciate the CEB translation because they render Son of Man as the human one. Jesus never calls himself a king. He doesn't call himself um, by sort of spiritual names uh, very often. His favorite title is the human one, the son of man. Um, the word man in Greek is anthropos, which just doesn't mean male or female, just human, human, son of humanity, the human, the most human one. So here's an example in Mark chapter 2. Um, it's a healing, one of Jesus' first healing stories. It says, some people arrived and four of them were bringing to him a man who was paralyzed Jesus spent his whole life caring about bodies. They couldn't carry him through the crowd, so they tore off part of the roof above where Jesus was, and when they had made an opening, they lowered the mat on which the paralyzed man was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Some legal experts were sitting there muttering among themselves, Why does he speak this way? He's insulting God. Only the one God can forgive sins. Jesus immediately recognized what they were discussing, and he said to them, why do you fill your minds with these questions? Which is easier to say to a paralyzed person, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your bed and walk. But so you will know that the human one has authority on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, get up, take your mat, and go home. The human one occurs more than... 30 times in Matthew's gospel, like 25 in Luke. It's Jesus' favorite title for himself. God is a body. God is a human. Which sort of suggests, and if you're like me, you grew up in a world where the spiritual and the material did not go together. In fact, they were opposites and you could only like one. And one tried to drag you away from the other and it was always a problem. Um, but you probably, maybe if you're like me, you grew up with a not very nice relationship with your body. But at Christmas time, I'm reminded... If God has a body, and God is a body, then perhaps bodies can be good. <laughs> perhaps bodies can be uh, a place to encounter the divine, perhaps even a home of the divine.
So if your body, and we know this from Genesis, is made in the image of God, there might be some pictures on the PowerPoint that you're just supposed to intuitively, just something else for your mind, because you can encounter the reality around you with your eyes and your ears, and other things we'll discuss in a minute. But um, in Genesis, it says that you were made in the image of God. Not your intellect is made in the image of God. Not your emotional uh, center, wherever you imagine that to be, is made in the image of God. Not some attribute of your character, your longing to connect, your, your longing to communicate. No, you. He, let us make humanity in the image of God. So poof, physical bodies, the image of God. Your body bears the image of God. Not, not, it's not an intellect, it's not a spirit, it's not, a, it's not your imagination. Your body is a home for God. In 1 Corinthians 6, in fact, it says that, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? So, let me back up for a second, because I know some of you right now are like, yes, but what about Paul? Because Paul does often uh, set flesh and spirit apart, and like, how classic Nicola to be like, no, the flesh is good, ignore the Bible. Not classic, none of you think that, but I promise you there are some out there who are afraid that that's what I'm all about, which I'm not. I love the Bible and I love Paul. The writings of Paul are my favorite in the New Testament. Um, but when you really read Paul closely and you pay attention and you, you kind of hold the writings of Paul within the broadness of the whole canon, which we as evangelicals are all about, you see that Paul is not in any way, shape, or form saying that the body is bad and you should ignore your body. Um, you'll find passages like, I think Galatians, I think there's a slide here in Galatians 5. So here's a great example. This is, if you grew up and this was kind of what you heard about the body, um, this probably explains some things. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Okay. Flesh or spirit. The flesh is this place of sin that's going to pull you away from things of the spirit. And so a good Christian will deny and numb and push away and learn to shut off anything the body should say so that you could free your spirit. I grew up that I grew up that way, did you? Am I the only one? Not yeah, yeah, right? Your body's bad, never trust it. And that could mean um, you know, your what your body wants in terms of sexuality, what your body wants in terms of like another piece of cake, what your body wants in terms of sleeping in a little longer. It's like you need to deny your flesh these things because these things are destroying um, your relationship with God. Um, and that's how I grew up, and, and it's because of these verses in Paul, there's several of them. Galatians is like, it's like a main theme. But guess what? Um, if any of you are friends with Jess Lefebvre, you might know this. There's a couple of you. Looking at you, Megan. She does somatics. She's a soma, so that's why this is relevant. But um, the Greek word for, you can go back to the Galatians one. The Greek word for body is soma, soma. That's not the word Paul's using. He says the flesh. He doesn't say the body. He says the flesh. The Greek word for flesh is sarx. Uh, it's, it's a very different word. He never once says um, your body is bad. In fact, Paul uses the word soma when he talks about the church. We are the soma of God, the body of God. And Paul doesn't always talk about sarx flesh in a negative way. Um, in fact, in, in, in the New Testament, one of the most commonly cited verses for Christians everywhere is John 1.14, which says... Uh, then the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that word is sarx. So the flesh can't be the opposite of spirit if the celebration of this time of year and at the heart of our faith as Christians is God is sarx. God has a body. God has a soma. God has flesh. Uh, so there's a whole bunch we could do to unpack this, and I think part of um, this whole series 
will do just that. I won't do it all today, don't worry. But it's pretty powerful to me when I consider also that the Greek and the Hebrew word for spirit is the same word uh, for breath. Breathing. How often do you hold your breath? How often do you forget that you're breathing? Breathing is that awareness that you are alive and that your whole body, every cell, is moving and growing and yearning at all times. And breathing is a connection to that. And so um, if you reread it with um, flesh and breath, you would have, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the breath. And the breath, what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict. And there's an invitation. And I would love, I could even go into how the name of God, Yahweh, that saying it Yahweh, it's because we've added vowels into it to try and make it sound like a word because it doesn't sound like a word. The consonants that make up the name of God, when you try and just pronounce the consonants that make the, the name of God, Y-H-W-H, it just sounds like this. <sighs> it's a breath. So the spirit of God and your breath are also not two antithetical ideas by any means. That's right. But we've been socialized into believing that the body is bad and your spirit is good. Uh, there was actually this whole heresy that the early church had to deal with called Gnosticism, which kind of we got from Plato. Um, any philosophers in the crowd, uh, this is great for you, but I promise just five seconds for everyone else. Um, Gnosticism was this heresy in the early church that taught that all things of the material world are bad and corrupt and evil, but the spirit and the spiritual realm is good and pure. And so your spirit is trapped inside a body that's corrupt. And one day, if you believe the exact right thing, your spirit will be set free from your body. That was a heresy, a big-time problematic heresy that the early church had to work very hard to rebuke. And in fact, we can see evidence of the heresy of Gnosticism um, all throughout the New Testament. The New Testament writers trying to confront it. So um, Gnostics believed that Jesus didn't really exist with a body. He just sort of appeared to have a body because how could God have a body? Bodies are bad. Um, but here we go. Look in Luke chapter 24. This is an example of the, the author of Luke's gospel trying to deal with Gnosticism that was permeating the early church. This is a, a story from after Jesus has died and he's risen from the dead and he's not risen and gone to heaven he's risen in a body and imagine a community that is struggling with the temptation to believe in gnosticism um, this is how the early church kind of deals with that heresy the author says they were startled and frightened so jesus appears to them they were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost he said to them jesus why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds I'm not a ghost. There's actually happens all throughout the Gospels where they're like, we thought we saw a ghost. And Jesus is like, I'm not a ghost. I'm a real body. I'm a human body. You can see me. You can touch me. He says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I, myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He's like, touch me. I'm a real being. I'm a real thing. I have a real body. And I'm God. And I'm perfect. And while they still did not believe it, because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. I just love the scene, like Jesus is like, it's me, I'm a real body. And they're touching his body, they're touching his wounds. Like, but how is that possible? We saw you die. If Romans are good at anything, it's making people die and stay dead. You were dead. And Jesus says, touch me, it's me. And then, here, I know, feed me, give me something to eat, watch. And then he sits down and eats in front of them to say, see, I'm a real body. 
I'm really real. I'm really alive. And this is uh, the evidence. He eats in front of them and says, touch me. And this is what it means that God became flesh and dwelt among us, Emmanuel. One of the big issues the early church is facing is this controversy around circumcision. So <laughs> if there's ever a series to talk about um, foreskins, this is probably the one. So you're welcome. Um, but there was a big concern about whether people who were circumcised or not could be in the church. Because guess what? The scriptures are clear. They can't be. The scriptures are clear. Uncircumcised people, not allowed. That goes back to Abraham. And it's like really underscored in Moses. And the whole early church is about this controversial community that's like, I know the scriptures are clear, and I know tradition is clear, and I know that's how we've always done it, but I saw the Holy Spirit do wild things in the body of uncircumcised people. So should we look to their flesh and say, but you're not circumcised, and then put them out? Or should we look at the fruit of the Holy Spirit in their life? And that's the whole conflict of, of the whole New Testament. And so whenever you hear Paul be like, the flesh versus the spirit, he's kind of saying like, when we judge someone by this certain part of their body, and then we categorize their belonging um, in or out based on this attribute of their flesh, well, that's not the way of the spirit. So we always have to remember kind of the context in the early church. Um, so think about this with me for a minute. And I, Dallas, I'm so glad you're here and you're like right in front of me, because we had coffee this week and we talked about this a bit and it was so lovely. Um, you have five senses. Um, potentially, there are people who don't have all five senses, but I'm going to imagine the people here um, have mostly use of all five. You can see and smell and hear and touch and taste. That's it. That's how you experience the world around you. That's it. That's how you encounter the world. Those five senses. That's how you've come to know everything you've ever known and everything you will ever know. You, you may have had a spiritual encounter and said, no, I encountered God with my spirit. Were you listening to worship music? Were you reading your Bible? Were you sitting face to face with a, a mentor and hearing um, from them? You have these five senses. Everything we know, we've known from these senses. I have grown up most of my life believing that I encountered God through my intellect. I've spent a lot of time in university and seminary. I've thought that I encounter God purely through my spirit. I close my eyes, I go in a dark room, I tune out every single possible thing, and hopefully in the silence then there'll be a spiritual sort of thing. And my experience has been that I know everything I know because of those five senses. And if you read the way the scriptures talk about God, it's almost as if God also experiences reality through those five senses. In Psalm 34 it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus invites Thomas to touch his wounds when Thomas doesn't believe. Um, scripture in Genesis 8 talks about God smelling the offering that Noah uh, gave to him. God appears to Moses in a burning bush and says, I have heard the cries of my people. I've seen their suffering. These five senses, we're going to do an exercise with those five senses in a minute here, but I wanted to talk a little more because it's me. One of the Bible verses that people have memorized um, most often is John 3.16, which is really beautiful. If you think about it, it says, For God so loved the world. Stop there for a minute. The world. Hey, it's not for God so hated the world, and he was going to destroy the world because he was so angry and wrathful. But thankfully, Jesus stepped in and was like, No, beat me instead. That's not the gospel. That's not it. He loved the world so much. The world being this stuff. 
this pulpit, this wood, this plant, this, this table, this carpet that we're ripping out, the tiles with a little bit of asbestos in them underneath. This world, <laughs> this material world, God's like, I love it. I love it so much that I'm going to become a part of it. And I'm going to make myself vulnerable to it. I'm going to take risks on it. For God so loved the world, he sent his son so that whoever would believe would live into the new age, would live into the age to come forever and ever. God loves this realm, this place that you can touch and see and taste and smell and hear. Jesus is the word made flesh. In Isaiah 6, what are the angels, what are the, the seraphim crying out over and over and over for all of eternity in the dwelling place of God? Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. All of it, the soil, the earthworms, the trees, it's all filled with the glory of God. This kind of Greek philosophy that we got stuck with where we think, no, there's this world you can see and touch, and then the good world where you can't see or touch anything. What? We've got to go back to the scriptures, my friends. We have to taste and see that the Lord is good. Your body, your soma, is good. All bodies are good. That's the wild thing. In our world, we've created this body hierarchy where only some bodies are good. But all bodies are good. That's what Paul's doing. Everywhere he goes, he's like, your body's good, and your body's good, and your body. And he creates a body out of that gospel message. Your body is a home for God. I grew up hearing that my body's a temple, and I heard that in one context. Around puberty, when you start to think about like sex and sexuality, which is also the time that my eating disorder started. <laughs> They're correlated, so check this out. Your body's a temple. I took that to mean that my body, I also grew up evangelical, and I did church in a community center, because as evangelicals, we believed sacred space was bad and like kind of Catholic. So temples are bad, that's how I grew up, because you shouldn't, that's vanity, you shouldn't spend money on buildings and waste stuff on like aesthetic. We just met in a community center. So I hear, your body's a temple. And I already have this idea in my mind that that's vanity and selfishness and whatever. And then inside that building, there's God. So I imagine my body, it was this like shell that was full of vanity and it was a waste to spend time on it, even though I really wanted to wake up early and do my hair and makeup when I was 13 and 14. But it's vanity. But somewhere inside my body is God. And I imagine that. So like, you know, the temple is the building, but then inside there's this empty space. And so I guess I kind of went my whole life imagining that there's an empty space somewhere in my body. There's like a cavern in there. Maybe from like my chin to like my belly button, it's like an empty space. And God's in there. And if I could just peel back all of this disgusting stuff between me and God, I'd be free. Think about you're going through puberty. Oh, if I could just peel back the, the pimples, <laughs> the hair, <laughs> the chub. <laughs> God is in there somewhere, but all this evil, gross, awful stuff is in the way. I imagine that. And so you start to hurt your body and make it suffer and try and get rid of it to find that empty hollow cavern inside where apparently God is but if you've ever studied anatomy guess what there's no empty space inside there there's no cavern it's full it's packed full like bones and and and, and blood and the muscle and the tissue it's all crammed together and yet our body is a temple of God meaning it's not that God's deep inside there somewhere it means God is in my fingernails in my knee joints 
God is in the back of my neck, in the taste on my tongue. God is in my feet and my legs and my belly and my body hair and all of it is a temple of God. My body is good. And so this is where I'm at. This is it, and this is where I think Awaken is at. Um, at the core of our faith as Christians, we can strip away, we can deconstruct like some, a whole bunch of um, part cultural aspects of that Christianity, that faith tradition, but we can't deconstruct a few things. Um, we believe that God is creator. Think about that very word, creator. Maker of things. <laughs> the one who makes what we can see and touch and taste and feel and hear. Creator. And we believe at the heart of our faith in the incarnation that the creator also can hear and see and touch and smell. The creator has a body. We believe in the bodily resurrection. That Jesus didn't die and then go to a better place. And like, if you believe in that, then you get to go to the better place one day. Jesus died. So our God was a, a bloody corpse at one point, which is wild. And then bodily came alive again. And we, our whole faith is built on that one thing, that Jesus is the firstborn of the new creation. And a body comes with the new creation. The new creation includes a body. And, and so for me, people are like, Nikayla, how are you still a Christian? Like when I, you know, we talk about things like residential schools and the Trump administration and all sorts of other things that make it hard to out yourself as a Christian. I say, I'm still a Christian because of the incarnation. Creator become creature. And because there's this overwhelming hope in scripture that one day, one day all things will be reconciled uh, to God. All of it. That not a single thing here is beyond the reach of redemption and goodness. And one day laughter and goodness wins. And, 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 and nothing this world throws at me can shake my hope in that. An incarnate God who's coming towards us always and will one day be completely here with us. So Jesus' whole life is a ministry of bodies. He touches bodies, heals bodies, eats with bodies. So much of Jesus' life, especially Luke's gospel, is eating with people. Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard because Jesus enjoyed bodily delights. He didn't spend his life as a monk, fasting and, and, and denying himself. He spends his life delighting. He loves his own body. And therefore, he is welcoming all sorts of different bodies to become one in his body anew. Your body is created, uh, and you have this thing within you called a nervous system, which I've been learning about this last year in therapy. <laughs> and it's profound, your nervous system. Um, it, what I've learned is that you know your whole body is always trying to do two things. That's it, just two things. Um, stay alive and connect. Life and connection. Another way of saying that is safety, to keep you safe. Your immune system, uh, your skin, your, all sorts of things are just trying to keep you safe. Uh, and, and yet your body is also desperately trying to connect you. And it's a beautiful paradox because to connect, you have to become vulnerable, which feels unsafe. So you're always kind of moving between a need to be safe and to be connected, to be genuine and be connected. And when you feel unsafe, you lock down, you shut down. And when you feel brave, you reach out and say, I need you. And your whole body at all times is working towards those two things to keep you safe and keep you connected. I learned recently that um, your brain isn't just in your head, your brain's throughout your whole body. There's more living beings in your gut than there are cells in your body. 
And did you know that the serotonin, serotonin is a hormone which makes you connect, 90% of it is produced in your gut by the living beings that aren't related to you. These living beings, the, the microbials in your gut, are not genetically related to you at all, and they produce 90% of your serotonin, which is the hormone that makes you connect. Whoa, are you kidding? We are so interconnected and in our bodies doing this. We are trying to connect. I also learned recently that um, we talk about like my emotions versus my body, but if you've ever hung out with a baby for very long, you know that emotions are also bodily sensations. A baby cries. And then eventually the parents are like, are you feeling sad? And that baby grows up to be like, oh, that's sadness. And then goes on to say, I, I'm feeling sad. And we lose touch with like, where do you feel that in your body? That was a sensation. Sadness, jealousy, joy is a, is a bodily, a bodily, even cognition is a bodily um, thing. And so your body is doing a lot of work for you at all times. But somehow we've been tricked into disembodiment. When Adam and Eve listened to that tricky snake, what happened? They immediately went and put clothing on and hid from each other. The shame landed in the body. The next generation, Cain's shame and humiliation and rejection lands in his body and he kills Abel. Siblings trick and steal and lie, objectify each other, numb themselves out from each other, sell each other into slavery. The book of Genesis begins in Eden, naked and unashamed, safe and connected, and it ends in Egypt, where hungry slaves are building the storehouses for the excess of the wealthy. The lie that your body doesn't matter flows straight into the bigger lie that only some bodies matter, or perhaps even worse, nobody matters. And then we get exclusion and isolation and clicks and pockets and toxic loyalty cultures because only this body matters. It's amazing. Imagine living your whole life believing that at once your body is bad, but also the only thing that matters about you and your currency for belonging. How can you live in that world? That's a trauma in and of itself to live in that tension. I heard Hillary McBride talking about this on a podcast. She said, you're taught, especially, uh, I felt this way um, as a young woman, um, perhaps others felt this way probably, but that you should not care about your body, your body's bad. But also, if you've ever watched TV or read a magazine or looked around, Certain bodies get a lot of connection and love and belonging. So your body's bad, but it's the only thing that matters. You can't. You can't live in that state of believing that. That kind of disintegration is a trauma in and of itself. And so before we go into communion, which is what we're going to do here um, right now, I want you to do um, two exercises with me. Um, you can do it sitting. But Logan even alluded to it in the poem by Padre Gotuma, which is beautiful. But put your hand somewhere on your body, your leg or your shoulder or your cheek and say to yourself this is me and I encourage you literally to do it in different places this is me and this is me and this is me and this is me this body is good this body is you this body has always been you and will always be you and this body loves you very much, even when you are unkind to her or him or them. This body is divine. This body is your home. Always has been and always will be. That's what we believe as uh, Christians.
And so we're going to take communion together, and I want you to think about communion right now for the first time in a new way. The body of Christ given to the body of you. Who are you? I look at myself in the mirror, and I look at all this mass, this being, this person who has substance, and I think, where did all this mass come from? I used to hate the Hulk. I've never really seen any Marvel superhero movies, but I do know the Hulk, and I would drive me crazy, because I'm not very scientific, but I'd be like, where did the mass come from? I'm looking at you, Ariana, because you're a biology, you know. Where did the mass come from? You can't just switch and suddenly gain 500 pounds. Where did the mass come from? Where does all mass come from? It comes from the food you've eaten. All of it. Everything, every single cell in your body. It began with the, the food your mother ate in the womb, uh, and then maybe you uh, ate food her body continued to make through breast milk, and then your own food. Every single cell in your body came from the food you ate. It's like the most embodied act is to eat food. And Jesus takes his body, which also came from food, and says, this is my body. Take and eat. My body for your body. And so, second exercise before we take communion together. Without speaking aloud, but in your own um, mind, and even especially you, those of you on Zoom, I want you to look around for a minute and name in your mind some things you can see. Don't evaluate it and say, I see something beautiful or I see something ugly. Just what can you see? I can see a green plant and faces. An old building that's loved us very well. What can you smell? What can you hear? What can you feel? Notice the feeling of your toes in your socks or the waistband of your jeans. How, how tightly your hair tie is tying your hair back. And lastly, what can you taste? I had this really lovely moment uh, with Dallas where I was like, what can you taste? And we both were like, well, nothing, because I haven't eaten or drank anything. I don't have gum in my mouth. What can I taste? And I don't remember exactly, but it was like, you can taste you. That's you. Oh, I taste Nikayla. That's me. There she is. I've done this exercise with a few people recently, and almost every time, um, for reasons that people did not fully understand, they felt emotion come up. And I'm not sure if that is something you relate to, but it turns out when you listen to the body, it has lots to say. And I think that act of listening to the body and what it has to say is a very important part of what we call prayer. The scriptures say that the Spirit of God is within you at all times, crying out, Abba, Father. You listen to that body is the first step of prayer. You don't encounter God with your intellect or with your soul. Um, you encounter God with your body. You know God through these five senses the same way you know one another with these five senses. And so, when we start listening once again to this body, unlearning all that we've learned about this body, perhaps the gospel comes anew. At the center of our shared faith is Jesus at a table, saying, this is my body. Take and eat my body for your body, an exchange between bodies in the dream of forming a new body. Where once there were two, now there is one. All who share this divine meal become together the body of God. 
We are God's body. Back in Genesis, I mentioned this earlier, Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed, safe and connected. And there's this note um, in Genesis 1 where it says, and the two shall become one flesh. But you'll notice in the biblical story, I don't think there's ever a time where it says, and now they were one flesh. Uh, that comes actually in the New Testament. Galatians 3. In John 17, time and time again, we become one in Christ. The many become one flesh at this communion table right here. We eat all take into our bodies the body of Christ and become new. We are the body of God in this world. This sacred meal is the place where we are joined, the place where we belong, the place where the parts become whole, the many become one. This is our faith, our hope, our gospel. We belong to an embodied creator. We belong to one another within our creator. Thank you.